Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic DeLaghi and it's competition time. Do you want to win something for free, for virtually no effort? Well, now's your chance. Listen carefully. A few episodes back, our featured film was the 1966 comedy The Sandwich Man, starring Michael Benteen plus about a million other stars of the day. Excitingly for us, that episode of Soho Bites, episode 33, has been included as a bonus feature on a brand new 4K, never know what that means, restoration of the film, which is available now on DVD and Blu-ray, thanks to our friends at Network On Air. To celebrate that release, I'm giving away two copies of the film, and as well as that episode of Soho Bites, it's brimming over with other special features, including viewing notes written by friend of the show, Professor Melanie Williams. If you'd like to win a copy of that DVD, all you have to do is answer this simple question. One of the many well-known stars to appear in The Sandwich Man is the late, great Dora Bryan. But despite being very famous, Dora was, much to her annoyance, often mistaken by fans for another well-known character actress of her generation. To win one of those DVDs, all you have to do is tell me who that other actor slash actress was. You can do that on Twitter by sending a message to at BitesSoho, or you can email SohoBitesPodcast at gmail.com. And because I'm generous, you can enter as many times as you like. Just send each entry in a different message. In the next episode, I'll draw two correct answers out of the hat, a literal hat, and you'll receive your DVD in the post. That question again. Who was Dora Bryan often mistaken for by members of the public? Okay, so it's a rubbish question, but hopefully it's not possible to find the answer on Google. Try finding a competition answer these days. It's virtually impossible. Everything's Googleable, but hopefully that isn't. If you have a very poor memory and don't know how to rewind podcasts, never fear. You'll find the question again in the show notes for this episode at SohoBitesPodcast.com. So, the featured film in this episode is The Optimists of Nine Elms from 1973, starring Peter Sellers. As is often the way, the film was given a different name for its release in the US, where it is known simply as The Optimists. Two questions. 
Why is the film on Soho Bites when Nine Elms is an area of London three miles from Soho? And why was the quite poetic The Optimists of Nine Elms shortened to the much more prosaic The Optimists? I think the first answer is easy. The film is set largely in Nine Elms, but there are a couple of key scenes in Soho, including one in the unofficial Soho Bites recording studio, otherwise known as the Churchyard of St Anne's on Wardour Street. More from there shortly. And as far as question two goes, I can only guess that the US distributors requested a name change because they rather patronisingly assumed that the inclusion of a London place name that wasn't Big Ben or the Tower of London might alienate American cinema goers who'd never heard of Nine Elms, which is a bit silly, especially as one of the child stars of the film explains exactly what Nine Elms is in the opening moments of the film. Nine Elms is the name of a place in London south of the river. There might have been nine trees there once, but the time we're talking about, Nine Elms didn't mean trees. It meant fog in winter, the noise of trains. But most of all, it meant Sam, the first to show us the world on the other side of the river. And weirdly, the US Embassy is now located in Nine Elms, so... Today, Nine Elms is totally unrecognisable, having been gentrified to an extreme degree. And the film catches the area in those final few years before the developers moved in. A wasteland on the southern edge of the River Thames, full of heavy industry, low-quality housing and filthy, disused canals, all crisscrossed by elevated train tracks. A far cry from the cluster of steel and glass apartment buildings we see there today. Just one of the many London neighbourhoods that has changed beyond all recognition within living memory. In the second half of the show, I'll be talking to Belfast-based film historian Robert J.E. Simpson about The Optimist of Nine Elms, and as it turns out, it's a film he has particular affection for. Before that, I'll be visiting one of the locations of the film, the aforementioned St Anne's Churchyard on Wardour Street. That's where I met up with a chap who is both a novelist and, let's face it, you won't mind me saying this, a massive London geek, Christopher Fowler. Oh, did I mention that Chris has been on the show before? He was in that Sandwich Man episode on that DVD you're going to win. What are the chances of that? Chris's hugely popular series of novels about Arthur Bryant and John May, two elderly detectives who work for the fictional Peculiar Crimes Unit, are packed with obscure, little-known facts about this mighty city. The latest Bryant and May book was published a few weeks ago and is a bit of a departure from the 20 previous PCU books in that Arthur and John aren't actually solving any crimes. What's going on? I asked Christopher Fowler. Is this a different type of Bryant and May book? It's very different because my detective characters are always based in, in central London and they talk a lot about London. But I thought it would be good to have to do a book of London with all the oddities I know but of course there's thousands of London books you know and every week there are new books arriving and a lot of the books are very specialised some by academics and, and I thought well I can't compete on that front because you know I'm not going to spend years doing one tiny area of London but I need a way of stringing all these serious oddities together if it was conversational, I could conversation hop. So I thought, what if I put them in the mouths of my characters from the series 
And if you know the series, it's great. If you don't know, it doesn't matter. It's like joining on someone's conversation for, for keen London heads who just want to talk about London. Everything from the pubs to the rivers to the, why streets don't go in the right direction. And why things have got weird names. And, and that one of the characters, Arthur, the more elderly of the two, he does do walking tours, doesn't he, as a sort of sideline to his police work. Yes, yeah. Is it, a, is it supposed to be a kind of... Is it one of his tours put down on, on paper? That's how I started it, and then I couldn't figure out how to make... Like the, you know, you could, it's very difficult to have a guided tour guy going, and over here it was, because you've got nothing to look at. So then I just started to bring in several of the other characters. Plus, of course, Arthur knows lots and lots of specialist people. Yeah. So then he goes, well, I'm bringing, to talk about crime in London, I'm bringing in this cat burglar. And the chapters on theatre are narrated by an old performer called Dudley Salterton. Yeah. <laughs> That's a terrible <laughs> pun. That is really <laughs> terrible. And because it's written from the point of view of a character, or mostly one character, but other characters interject, do we assume that it's their unreliable narrators? Are we, are, they, are we allowed to get away with things, you know, his opinion being chucked in? Oh, yeah, and we've got quite a lot of opinions, particularly from Arthur about the Barbican. Oh, yeah. Um, she doesn't like, does he? Which she does not like. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I had all these other characters, and then they could, you know, talk about each bit. And I, some of them, but they're not unreliable. They, they know their subjects. But it gives me a little bit of wiggle room if something changes, because, you know, a book takes a year and it takes a year to get published and then already things are changing from when the book's only been out a few weeks and things are already changing so I had to give myself a little bit of space there to say look these guys are just offering you their opinions and so I've got Janice who's one of the key officers talking about Soho clubs because she has a background in Soho clubs isn't she Janice? Yeah yeah. so I've got those characters who talk about their own specialities and Sometimes it's a bit of their opinion, but the facts are the facts, and they've all been triple-checked. I mean, you know, I did a lot of work on them. So when we were trying to come up with a, a theme to link it to Optimus and Nine L's Elms, the two subjects that I came to mind were street performers mm-hmm. and also the changing nature of London neighbourhoods. What's going on? Some nutter over there. Really? Surely not in Soho. Well, and I, I just keep thinking, you know, when I had my building here in Bateman Street, now a fetishware shop, um, <laughs> everybody... Well, that's very in keeping with Soho, though, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it? It was, it was a, a film production facilities house, yep. and now it's gone back to yeah, a fetish shop. a fetishware shop. <laughs> but everybody used to wash their... In the morning, everything was wet here, because everybody used to wash in front of their own building used to wash the pavement. Okay, I thought you meant wash themselves. No, no, used to wash the pavement in front of the building until about 2000, I think. And then suddenly stopped one day. I think the the neighbourhood that we should talk about having changed a lot. I mean, obviously Nine Elms has changed totally beyond recognition. There was no attempt with Nine Elms to preserve its character. What even was its character? It was just an industrial wasteland, wasn't it, 50 years ago? And now it's a kind of steel and glass wasteland, really. And it's, I mean, you could say that it had character in those days, but... No. I, uh, I, no I mean... I think it was the bit you drove through from Lambeth to Vauxhall. I, I just remember it smelt sickly sweet because there was some kind of jam factory there or sugar factory or something. It was always very, very sweet smelling. And then when they tore it down, they 
the area still smelt sweet for a while afterwards. I remember that vividly. Oh, there was a pub. There was a pub called The Anchor. I think it was called The Anchor or The Ship. And it was all by itself, on a, on a, right on the edge of the water. It was like a Watneys or something. It just stood there alone, and then one day that wasn't there. But I mean, that in a way, that, that, that reflects... It's like the most extreme example I can think of, but maybe, apart from maybe the Isle of Dogs, you know, a neighbourhood that's changed... And I think with Soho, there's always talk about Soho changing and that kind of thing. But it hasn't changed in the way that a physical change, like the Isle of Dogs, or it's, it's, it's more its character and personality has Retail changed. Retail usage and things like yeah. that. It's not... Um, OK, well, it was all film companies in Wardour Street, obviously. And, yeah. you know, there are changes there, but just walking through this morning, I was quite aware that it was still Soho, very much. Yeah. Soho, pretty much the same as it was, isn't it, really? I mean, I suppose... I have this, I have this idea that Soho's borders kind of expand and contract a bit I think of it as being bordered by Oxford Street, Regent Street Charing Cross Road and Shaftesbury Avenue Yeah I think that's how we all think of it But then the Regent Street end doesn't feel very Soho-ish whereas Denmark Street the other side of Charing Cross Road did did, did. and And Gerrard Street feels quite Soho-ish and the West but the worst parts of Soho, I mean, some, some bits around Golden Square feel the most Soho of all, or, or the least uh, changed, I think. I went to see that film um, last night in Soho, and we came out of the screening, and then we went into the pub that was in the film, and it was raining hard, and it was all neon on the, on the road, and it felt just like a scene from the film. It was amazing. And I thought, I thought that's where the past and the present did collide quite nicely but it doesn't happen as often as it did I don't think and because you have quite a long association with Soho now going back to when did you start your company um, let me think 70 78 I think 78 so when you're walking around Soho in 2022 do you have to have that memory of it as it was to give it that sense of, oh yes, it's still Soho. I mean, would, would a tourist who's just landed in the middle of the West End have a sense that Soho is different from other parts of the West End, do you think? Or oh, is, it d- just, is it just you? No, and what do you think gives it that? Partly all the narrow road layout is quite unusual for the, that area. And I think it's skankier than it was, a lot skankier than it was, a lot more street furniture and dirt litter and because there's so many restaurants and, yeah. and cafes. All the restaurants were quite, you know, they were Luigi's and Bianchi's and they were all the Italian ones and Hungarian ones and French ones. It wasn't really, you know, there was no street food kind of places. But I think anybody coming in cold will just go, oh, Soho, wow. You know. I've heard of this place. Although I do overlay, I do overlay, when I walk down Water Street, I do overlay where all of the um, film companies were because, you know, obviously they still Hammer House is still there. And I do, it's impossible for me not to see those windows all full of movie posters. For a long time I was in Wardour Street, sort of pretty much above Bar Bruno. On the opposite corner to that there was a brothel building. And um, so the madams used to come out and change the door or something. And we'd time them, because we could, we could see straight in from our offices. And we'd time them, the average was six minutes. What, a bloke going in and coming out? Yeah, for punter. Oh my word. <laughs> Well, it's quite exciting, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's pretty fast food, isn't it? People often say, oh, things were much better in my day. And sometimes, objectively, things were worse. But because you were, like, 30 years younger, 40 years younger, and you were, like, at all your health and, you, you know, you could stay up all night, 
it seemed like better times. But it did, and it wasn't. I mean, there, there were there were fun things. I mean, we used to go, you know, because everybody used to take long lunches, long beery lunches, and um, we used to go to lunchtime disco. Oh no! Where was that? <laughs> the Valbon on uh, Kingley Street. Used to have the girls in bikini, gold bikinis dancing in a fountain. Then you go back to work after. That sounds fantastic. A bottle of wine and you know, <laughs> plates of spaghetti, and then back to work. So I mean, they were kind of fun things. The bad things were things like there were lots of little strip strip clubs where the door hostess would show you in, and you follow the stairs down and you uh, through a passage, and you come up in a, through an exit <laughs> <laughs> the other side. And uh, was, no, the threats and violence. I owned a nightclub in um, the other end of Bateman Street for a while. Oh, did you? Yeah, and um, the police used to come in every Friday night for their bunts and yeah. take 400 quid off me every wow. Friday night. So what year was this? 19... That must be 79. And quite open about it as well, which yeah. is amazing. Yeah, yeah, incredible. I'm sure it goes on now, but in a different way, in an entirely different form. Less with the police than just with dodgy property developers. There was a big row about the top end of Frith Street because there were a series of earlier than Victorian, they were pretty old buildings, and quite a few of them had their original fireplaces in them. So I tried to buy one. And the interiors, you couldn't touch the interiors. So we passed on it because of these huge fireplaces that went through four floors of the building. Went back about a year later, it all been gutted. <laughs> somebody paid a massive backhanded somebody yeah. else or somebody just went in overnight and just tore them all out and went, oh sorry mate chimney seems to have gone can we buy it now yeah I think one of the things that's affected it quite negatively is Berwick Street Market it's just gone I mean there's nothing there I, I can't understand how that came about I'm sure somebody listening would would know more about it well it faded it, I mean it did fade I mean one of the problems of of that was you know certainly more residents, Soho residents, and they bought fruit and veg. You know, you don't do that now. You know, so I think it sort of faded out. I remember it was always shrinking, and I've seen pictures in the 40s where it, it, people were moaning then about, you know, it wasn't, it isn't what it was. Do you feel sad about things changing, or is it just a kind of, you just accept it as... I fairly have philosophical about it I think well things yeah. change it's I'm know. not I'm not I don't have the nostalgia gene in that sense I mean I miss there are things I miss because I enjoyed them which do not exist anymore in your film freak book you're talking about a cinema I think it's a trocadero where you have to go down some stairs and across an abandoned oh, ballroom. Oh, that's the pavilion. Pavilion, pavilion, sorry, yeah. yeah. Just explain what that, what that was, because it was. I, you're in the cinema, you need a wee. You need a wee. You go to the front and through the side door, and you go down a, a long flight of stairs, you think, the loo's be here, and it opens into a ballroom, effectively the whole width of the entire cinema. And deep. And Underneath the auditorium. Lit, yeah, and very poorly lit because it's not used. And there were sort of chairs stacked in corners and things. And then you had to go down another bit, and then you, so basically you were using the toilets for when it was a club, when it was a big dance club. And um, but as I say, lots of areas, lots of there was lots of space that was unused in London. So that was nobody thought about. Oh, we must monetize that. 
in the same way that off St Anne's Court, just up here, on the right of off St Anne's Court, for, for, until the Soho Hotel was built, it was a bomb site. It was used as an NCP. There were quite a lot of bomb sites that were, the NCP had bought them all up and just. There used to be some story that that was how Michael Winner made it, made his money and he had a connection to NCP. But oh, really? Supposedly. I, I think just people didn't like him much. Because <laughs> NCP him. had the site of St Anne's Church as well. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. And then re- they rebuilt it. What we're looking at now is just like the original bit, but the, the modern bit that goes onto Dean Street, that was an NCP for many years. Well, Licensed to print money, isn't it? Uh, with the um, the pandemic, which you may have heard about, and this idea about people working from home more, and it feels like an opportunity to repopulate areas like Soho. It would be nice to get some of the spaces in Soho not used as offices for, you know, media companies or maybe not flats, but maybe back down to ordinary businesses. You know, it'd be nice to get yeah, some tailors back in, but why would they come here? There's the no problem. Is the leases? They're all too short. And, and the expensive probably as well. And they're really expensive. So my last, the last, so I own two buildings in Soho. The last one I owned, which we bought from Ridley Scott. Uh, the only reason why I sold it was because we promised to keep the cinema, and we did, and kept it in use as a film, a film company. As a screening room. Uh, it was a screening room, one floor, and it was there. It was the old offices of Illustra Films, and each floor had a speaking tube in it so you could just take the plug out the end of the tube and hear what was playing in the cinema in the basement it was it was and it was still exactly the same when we left it when we sold it and now it's a sex shop tons of gratitude are due to christopher fowler for coming all the way into town to talk to me about his new book and the changing faces of london neighborhoods and chris really was going above and beyond the call of duty because we actually met up on a day when the tubes were on strike so he walked all the way in to meet me we salute you sir and the music you could hear at the start of our conversation there is actually the theme tune of a proposed tv adaptation of the brian to may stories which unfortunately has not or has not yet been commissioned it was written by des birkinshaw you'll be familiar with if you listen to the Museum of London show on Soho Radio. Details about Des and, of course, about Christopher Fowler and his many books can be found in the show notes for this episode at SohoBytesPodcast.com. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. The Optimists of Nine Elms, directed by Anthony Simmons and starring Peter Sellers, was released in 1973. As a project, though, it had been around, as we will hear, for many years before that. One and two halves to Hyde Park, please. (laughs) 
Considering the rough industrial setting we find ourselves in at the start of the film, The Optimist of Nine Elms is a surprisingly tender story. It has three main characters. Liz, through whom the story is told, is about 12 years old and is played by Donna Mullane. There's six-year-old Mark, played by John Chafee, and there's old Sam, played by Peter Sellers, wearing a slightly odd prosthetic nose, which puts me in mind of the child catcher in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Sam lives in a ramshackle ex-industrial building on the edge of some waste ground and is an ageing music hall star who, in the years after the decline of the music halls, has been reduced to performing his old routines with his also ageing dog Bella on the streets of London. Liz, Mark and their parents live in fairly basic conditions in a tiny flat in Nine Elms. Mom and Dad, who can sometimes behave quite harshly towards Liz and Mark, work all the hours God sends and have a third child, a baby, to look after, so the kids are left to their own devices much of the time and wander aimlessly about the area, dreaming of the day Dad will have saved up enough money to move the family to the pristine new housing development that they can see on the other side of the river that they have never crossed. It's on one of these slow, meandering days that they encounter old Sam, and on their first meeting, they don't exactly hit it off. Don't annoy the dog, Sonny. She'll pee all over you. Sometimes it wasn't half as bad as all that. Sometimes don't know exactly what we had, but there were sometimes. What are you staring at? Yes. And their second meeting is even worse. Here, go on. Out. Private. Can't you hear? I said it's private. Stay out. Keep out. Sam, Sam. Good girl, Matt. What is that? I said keep out. Now stay out of here. It's not Dr. Bernardo's home. Stay away. Private property. Mine. Stay out. Sam, good girl, Matt. Must be spicy or iron, Matt. Candy girl, a leg of a chair. Look, I'm warning you. If you've not left in five seconds, I'd be a right potty one and drop you over the side. There's no water. Don't count on it. Anyway, it's private. It's not. Just wipe your nose. It's not private. It is. It's mine. You said. I said. It's mine. It's private. Can't you talk English? Bloody kid. The kids continue to torment Sam and follow him to his next performance, which is in the street outside a football match where he's hoping to tempt passing fans into popping a coin or two into the tin mug attached to Bella's collar. Pickings this day are not rich, with hardly a coin being dropped into the cup. Until, that is, Mark decides to carry Bella up and down the queue of waiting football fans, who then, won over by the cute dog and cute kid combo, cannot wait to stuff the cup with money. After this, a cautious friendship begins between the old man and the two latchkey kids. A whole world, one that had always been on their doorstep, is opened up to them, as he takes them across the river for the first time in their lives and takes them busking in Soho and Leicester Square. He even takes them to visit their imagined utopia, the new housing estate which hitherto they'd only ever seen from their side of the river through the grimy haze of Nine Elms. 
reality inevitably intrudes. And after some trouble with the parents and even with the police, the relationship between Sam and the kids reaches what feels like a natural conclusion. And I'm really conscious that I'm missing out a lot of detail about the film here, but that's because I want you to see it and I don't want to give too much away. The film is undoubtedly sentimental, as nearly all the reviews have pointed out, but as someone who has an almost allergic reaction to overt sentimentality, I don't find the sentimentality in this film cloying or saccharine because it never loses sight of the fact that the characters are living in very tough circumstances. It doesn't romanticise the poverty of the protagonists, rather it overlays a whimsical, almost fantastical story over the top of these conditions and says there is always hope. You could say there is room for optimism in Nine Elms. In preparation for this episode, I sent the very important and official Soho Bites list of Soho films to Robert J.E. Simpson, and this is the film he chose. Robert is a film historian and podcaster, amongst other things, and we were introduced by a mutual friend. Not in person, though, because he lives over the pond in Belfast, so we chatted in the new normal way, online, about the optimists of Nine Elms. Robert, could you tell me, um, tell me just for the purpose of record, tell me your name and uh, who the heck you are? <laughs> yeah, I wonder that every time I look in the mirror these days. <laughs> um, so I'm Robert J.E. Simpson. I'm a Belfast-based uh, film historian, writer, broadcaster, apparently visual artist. Um, that's who I am. Excellent. With a, a keen interest in British cinema. When I approached about this film, I think you suggested uh -huh. this film. You you'd seen it on the list, and you, mm -hmm. you turns out you've seen it many many times. Yeah, it's a film that I'm I'm very fond of. I mean, I, I, th there was a few films on your list that that tickled my fancy as, as sort of ones that I was familiar with, but this was one of the ones that that I have such fond memories of. I, I first saw it as a as a teenager, probably late night on Channel Four. But I, I fell in love with it instantly. I, I, there was something about it. It's a very kind of grim aesthetic, which from reading uh, letterboxed reviews, a lot of people find quite difficult to engage with. But for me, it was just this sort of magical, whimsical turn. I liked its grittiness. I liked its working class kind of vibes. I liked that the fact that it wasn't all pristine and the little musical numbers and things and it just sort of lodged in my head so I've, i i revisit it periodically as a kind of like a little comfort blanket for my childhood okay but as i get older and re-watching it again for this i find my appreciation is, is changing as well my appreciation of the characters of the shtick that's going on and then there's also the whole historical element and seeing how london is changing i spent a, a couple of days uh, sort of googling some of the locations and, and sort of seeing how the landscape has changed and somebody who visits film locations on occasion when I can. It, it's kind of curious to see the evolution of the city through this. I mean, they've clearly gone for, you know, the grimmest, most tumble down bits of the of the area, kind of canals. With There's a fantastic shot of they're playing on this boat that looks like 100 years old and it's crashed into the muddy bank and it's partially sunk and there's undergrowth growing over it. And they're just playing on it because... Because it's the seventies, and that's what you did in those days. I, I I find myself wanting to scream at the TV watching at this time uh, about Vile's disease and the danger of playing with rats and yeah, all sorts yeah. of other contagions. And from looking at the at Google Maps, there's not a car park in the bit where they were playing, 
and the bit that Wall's canal looks to be filled in or is so badly overgrown. The building that uh, Sam, who's Peter Sellers' character, lives in is still there as part of some industrial unit. Now, that'd be worth a fortune. It's kind of like <laughs> wooden floor, split level, exposed brick, you know, original features. That'd cost like cost a million quid, that place. But it's, it's supposed to be the epitome of... Uh, hovel isn't it it definitely has that that vibe i mean i suppose it fits within this building of these new apartments across the river and that you've got all this new construction well, i gather some of those apartments aren't even there anymore in the last 40 50 years They've, they haven't even lasted oh the ones the ones over the side of the river in the film yeah. they're actually way way out east that's in thamesmead i mean i appreciate the geography in this film is um completely wrong but there is, I suppose you've got that new construction, so you've got this new London and this the start of the, the sort of the change that was going on in the city, that kind of post-war modification. Um, and then you have these areas that were clearly the industrial heartland that were very, very busy, that, that spoke of the Londoner, and they're all falling apart, they're all falling away. And you can see gable walls of buildings that are no longer there. There is this transition I think it's appropriate for him because he feels like he's the last bastion in that that entire community. He's living there and it feels like he's on his own. Yeah. But also him and his kind of hearkening back to the old kind of music hall theatres in his performance is also that kind of last man standing. So it's, it's really, really appropriate and it works really nicely. Do you see any similarities between that kind of post-industrial thing of, in London and in Belfast? Because the Belfast shipyards went into massive yeah. decline, didn't they? Which affected a half the no, city, I, basically. I, absolutely. I mean, I, I was down in, in what would have been the, the shipyards um, the other day, the old Harlem Wolf in um, Queen's Island. Is it still there, um, the big yellow thing? That... So the two, the two yellow cranes are there, but they're actually only went up at the end of the 60s. Um, that's, that's Samson and Goliath, and they went up in 1969 and 1974. Um, a lot of folks seem to associate them with the likes of the Titanic, which was 1912. Yeah. Um, they are two completely different eras. There's a, there's a gable wall in East Belfast that annoys me every time I see it because they have the two yellow cranes over the building of the Titanic, and there was a completely different construction there. Oh, yeah, that's annoying. But it, it, it all declined. I mean, when I was a kid... Um, it was sort of the last days of the shipyards. The whole area became very desolate. They started tearing down all the stuff in the, the industrial history. And maybe this is partly why this film connected with me, because I saw this at a point where I would have been a teenager and seeing my Belfast, my home, also going through that change, going through the working class areas and seeing streets decimated. I remember when I was doing my film degree, going out to film something in, in some streets one day, and we'd done out a recce, and we'd seen these couple of streets that we were going to shoot some stuff in, and then the day we went back to do it, they'd torn them all down. It was just <laughs> rows and rows of houses had gone because they were they were upgrading them for, for a new community. And, I mean, those areas of Belfast today are the areas that are... The yuppies live. Yeah, posh people stay there. Mm. You know, they stay in their fancy hotels. They, they drink in their fancy bars. It's... You know, when housing goes into those areas, uh, it, it's people who can afford it. It's not, you know, it's not working class people at all, which is ironic for an area that was built off the working class. Very much like Nandelmsen, isn't it? Because I mean, it's all yeah. those kind of awful skyscrapers along the, the river. So Anthony Simmons directed it and he, he based it on his own novel that he wrote, in, I think, in 1964. Mm-hmm. 
I read the book. It's very, would you call it a novella even? It's so short. It's about 60, 70 pages. It's basically a children's book. I mean, it's yeah. aimed at children, young adults, sort of 12 plus, I think. Yeah, yeah. But it's incredibly close to the book, isn't it? It's uncanny. I mean, like dialogue is just lifted straight off it. The pacing is sort of the same. All the settings are the same. So it's a very effective and very faithful adaptation by the author of his own work. Because all the key events are all the same. And there's a moment in the book where she kisses him on the head. And in the book, she kisses him and says, that was one of the first time I realised I loved Mark. And in the film, the kiss happens, but then she doesn't, there's no voiceover. That felt like a, a lost opportunity in a way to bring the voice of the book even closer. But obviously that was a decision they made. The, the other thing that is slightly different, and I'm not sure that I quite approve, is the emphasis seems to have shifted from the kids in the book to Sam in the film. Mm. So I don't think there are scenes in the book that are Sam by himself. But they've got Peter Sellers, so what are they going to do? They're going to use Peter Sellers, you know. Absolutely. I mean, the book is told very much from her perspective. And yeah, I think it comes down to that star quality. Why would you not use Sellers? But also, I think it's the difference between the the style and the structure of, of writing a book that's for a literary audience, you know, for, for a reader. And having a film, which is a, a slightly more visual medium. I mean, it allows us, we, we, we cross-cut in a way. We can see the two of them living their separate lives, but also kind of drawn together, which we couldn't do in the book because everything is from her perspective. And if we were to see it from her perspective, we wouldn't understand some of the other stuff that's going on. I mean, there's stuff that happens with her parents in the film that we don't read in the book. They're allowed to have a conversation. And it's very clear that the mother is not that engaging as a mother goes. She's Mm. just sort of quite dismissive of them at times. And the father at times comes across as actually quite, generous and supportive and 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 he cares it is quite difficult to read and watch that lack of outward signs of affection Mm. and the only time that you get a little sense of that is so it's in the last scene really so i'll try to be a bit not too spoilery but it's all coming to a conclusion and dad has found the kids he didn't know where they were and he kind of grabs them and says where do you think you've been? And then he softens. And a modern parent, or most parents, I mean, I'm surely you just kind of you get on your knees and you'd hug them both to you. But you just, come on, let's get back. Your mum's worried. Or feel slightly kind of, just don't you love your kids? You know, that's what they're there for. That's <laughs> what you're supposed to do. But I think it's they you, do in their own way, you know. It was just that the, the life is so tough. It, I mean, I think it's a generational and it's a cultural thing. This isn't a story about working class parents who are kind of having it easy. This is about a, a, a family who are on the breadline, who are struggling to kind of do things that they aspire to be slightly, not even upwardly mobile, but they aspire to being to live in a nicer place. Off. Yeah. Just comfortable, have a have a house with enough rooms for all of them, yeah. rather than having to live in the kitchen. As much as Sam is is that kind of last bastion of his kind of people, they're also an example of this this sort of class of people that that was in the process of changing as social housing was changing. Mm. They are still allowing us that insight into something else, and I think it's really refreshing because so many films that would maybe depict that kind of element of society would be at risk of talking down to them. 
of not allowing them to be themselves, they feel to me like a very, very realistic family. Mm. And I mean, I don't know how much of that is is down to, to Anthony Simmons' own background and his own kind of interests. I mean, certainly some of the other films that I've, of his that I've seen, that element is there. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, I watched actually today, um, four in the morning, on your recommendation, because I'd mm. not seen that one. Um, it's on YouTube, and listeners. It was absolutely gorgeously grim mm. with Judy Dench as this sort of young struggling mother that felt very very authentic yeah I think if he's a Ken Loach film at some mm. point dad would have stood on the table and done a 15 minute monologue about the, the oppression of the workers and stuff but actually that in real life that's not what people do I mean they complain about the council and you know complain about this and that but they people aren't poets generally they're just getting on with their lives and what do you do if you want to better yourself you do more shifts at the factory and you know you go to the council housing office and you and it works for them you know at the end of the film they're moving away from nine elms we assume certainly to i, mean, it's, I think it's in the same area but it's it's a nicer place and they go shopping mm. for furniture and all that kind of stuff and, and that seems to bring the family together more and but he was he was a kind of very political guy you know he was he was from a socialist tradition anthony simmons yeah do you know much about him? Because he's he seems like quite a fascinating character. Not huge amounts, to be honest. Um, I've seen a few of his short films, things like Bo Bells, which very definitely has very similar elements to what's going on in Optimus of Nine Elms. Um, I know he's part of the the sort of the free cinema movement loosely. Do you know what that was? Because that keeps cropping up every time you read an obituary about of Anthony Simmons. <laughs> it says he was associated but not part of the free cinema movement. Oh well. What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, free cinema when it started off was a, it was a documentary film movement, right? You know, and it was heavily politicized. And I mean, he is making those kind of documentary films that are in in areas that that do feel like you know the, there should be some sort of social politicized point about them. And that documentary mentality, that that element of the free cinema movement, definitely feels like it's it's just through all his films. I mean, you see it in Optimists when they're they're, they're doing that stuff out in the streets. There is this element that it feels like it's it's literally like guerrilla filmmaking almost that they're mm. they're kind of sticking Peter Sellers and these kids out hiding a camera somewhere by the football and match. Seeing what happens, I felt like that the football match is quite raw, isn't it? That the scenes outside and the scenes inside the ground, and because you're not seeing it from the point of view of you know match of the day cameras, yeah, the cameras in amongst the crowd and well, Simmons said uh, reportedly said that that was the point at which Sellers was won over in terms of the production process. I mean, he, Peter Sellers is notoriously difficult, and when he this must have been quite early on in the filming that they were doing those scenes and the way that the audience responded to him performing and doing his his routines, let him inhabit the character and just go this this is working. And um, I mean, Sellers is. I think fairly typical of a lot of performers, you know, any of us who ever have got up on a stage just like to see people react to what we're doing. Mm. And, and he was no different. There's that line that he, he repeatedly says is that, you know, about how there wasn't a real Peter Sellers, that he'd somehow forgotten who he was over the years because of the way he inhabits his characters. So until he finds that in a performance, it feels like there's nothing there. In this one, he claimed he was inhabited by the spirit of Dan Leno. Um, yeah. Do you like his performance in the film? I I, I do. I mean, I I have, do you I have like such nose. I have such an awkward relationship with Peter Sellers because I am aware of how difficult he could be. But as a as a performer, when he's on form, I think he's amazing to watch. 
The Peter Sellers part was originally intended for Buster Keaton. Keaton was cast and apparently was uninsurable. He had done something, I think, in the UK and basically was drunk. Well, certainly how Simmons tells it, uh, uh, Keaton was drunk the whole time and so he was uninsurable as a result of this. Which right. is a shame because, I mean, if you, as a story, this had been sitting around for years. Um, initially, he'd had the, Simmons had had this concept for these kids who were living in Hyde Park. Um, they cast Keaton. They cast a couple other parts as well, I think, and then he just couldn't get anywhere with the financing, which led to him doing the novel and sort of the treatment for the film, which clearly he must have done the two things side by side. Mm. But Keaton would have been great. I, I mean, I can see it as a Keaton thing if you've seen um, the Chaplin film, Limelight. Yeah, I mean, I think it's slightly more Chaplin-y than keaton in a way, because Chaplin did have that... You know, that connection to poverty and he does have a sentimentality that runs it through some of his films. Yeah. I can see Keaton doing it, but then he he died in about 65-ish or something. Which, which which certainly tells you how long this film was in development for. Yeah, yeah. My understanding, I think, is that the project originated in the 50s. And at that time, Keaton is having this sort of mini resurgence as well on screen. He is turning up in cameos. He is doing other things. He was contracted. And Keaton and, and Sellers are... I know they're two very different performers, but both I think feel to me like they would work for it. I mean, even the point where there's, there's a there's a gorgeous brief moment towards the end of the film where there's a, a slight bicycle chase through Hyde Park. Oh yeah, that's totally Keaton. I mean, that that would have been a ten minute sequence if it was Keaton, you know, and the big Ben would have fallen on his head, but he would have been in the middle of the clock <laughs> and he wouldn't touch him. So I, I, I mean, there's obviously elements that have kind of. Been retained. I mean, Sellers is not really a slapstick performer. There's elements of it within the Pink Panther films, but generally speaking, he's a he's a comic actor rather yeah. than a rather than a slapstick performer. But he was ensconced in that kind of. He was brought up in that kind of environment. He mm. was familiar with those kinds of routines. But yeah, the the Keaton version is the version that I, I I'm going to have to try and imagine more to see if it can live in my head for a bit. And the two kids, mm. I mean, let's let's run through the cast a little bit. Apparently, Donna Mullane, who plays Liz, she's from the area, and was spotted walking home from school by yeah. somebody. I think a casting director said, "You girl, come here." And um, <laughs> I think she's fantastic. I can't believe she never did a film after that. She looks like Julie Christie. I, th I suppose it's that rawness, isn't it? I mean, like as a cat, I mean, it must be joy for a casting director to see that kind of potential in someone mm. and to spot that going down the street. And then, to, you know, I mean, that's fine. Okay, you spot someone that has a look, then you got to hope that they can carry it off. And she does. And yeah, yeah the, really well. the Julie Christie comparison is a good one. I tried to track down John Chase. I tried to track them both down, actually. Mm -hmm. Can't find Donna Mullane anywhere. John Chafee, who plays Mark, is now a leading osteopath in Romford and um, I've emailed him saying would you like to come on the programme to talk about your memories and uh, I may, he didn't get back I think he's got backs to crunch but he's good as well he's, he's like a ragamuffin I mean, he's just perfect you know stumbling around and I mean my earliest memories of my childhood that's what the world looked like and that's what kids look like you know mm -hmm. shambly and scruffy and there's so much hair everybody has so much hair in those <laughs> days um Mums and dads and kids and newsreaders and politicians and coppers. Everybody had like tons and tons of hair. He's adorable. I mean, he's he is a lot more genial than she is. I mean, her her snappy wit, her her kind of snarkiness. She's not quite icy, but it's heading that way. But then she has these real moments of tenderness, and the relationship between the two of those kids is is 
I genuinely feel the sparkle there. I mean, yeah, it's that lovely, point it? where I mean, there's a lovely moment which I, I, you know, where she reaches out and he says he's coming with her, and then she, she just takes his hand. And it's just so so nice and so tender in the way that she listens to him, and mm. there there's a warmth. I think that you know they're they're lucky they got. And mum and dad, who have, I've forgotten the actors' names, now I need to check. It's David Dacre is his dad, and Marjorie Yates. Is, That's is right. Mom. Yeah, David Dacre, who I just remember from Boone. Oh yeah, <laughs> he has that kind of rather brash quality. You expect him to be harder than he is. I think there's definitely a little heart in there, and there's a, there's a concern. It's just that he's been a bit blinkered to what's actually going on, and that mm. he's he's been so single minded in terms of in terms of his work. And the need to kind of get the family out of the, the the pit that they're in, that he's forgotten about some of the other stuff. Yeah, he's doing his his job as he sees it, isn't he? He's the, he's the man of the house. He needs to kind of work hard, and yeah. they do work really hard. And Marjorie Yates, what do you think of her? I mean, she 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 sort of flits between someone who's quite jokey and friendly and social, and then some a mother who's just not who I want to be my mum. <laughs> <laughs> gotta be honest. There's a complete lack of tenderness yeah. and empathy. I, I I get more warmth out of dad, and dad's meant to be the cold one. Yeah. There's a um, line when she says, "He's been trying to deal with them in some way," and she's, a, "I don't know why you bother talking to them." Yeah. Well, I mean, that in itself was a really nice sequence where dad is actually taking the time to explain to his his daughter why things are the way that they are. Mm. There is an element there of of empathy and understanding and connection. Which she, the mum, seems completely incapable of doing. Now that could be because there's a baby, and and having just seen four in the morning, I'm very aware that that is a recurring theme between those two films that they are yeah. mothers who are not really engaging with being a mother in the way that maybe they should be because it's hard. Yeah, it's, I mean, also she she does work as well. She works in the laundry, which you know isn't much fun. Is it a laundry? It's some kind it, of. It, Doing some Keith Chegwin works work. anyway. Yeah, Keith Chegwin works there. I think just before he starts in swap shop. Bit of casual kind of everyday sexism for poor Keith as the the the, the office toy boy, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't even get a line. No, <laughs> he's not credited either, is he? But he's so no, clearly he's... Keith Chegwin. It's not. It's not like, oh, I recognise him. Who's he? No, no. Keith Cheggers just walked on. <laughs> He'll be playing pop. At some point, I guess that's the thing. Is I mean, it's showing the realities of trying to balance a family life, mm. and I think that the 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 family, the, the actors chosen for that, work really well at doing that. There's one other thing I wanted to talk about, which is quite a major element of the film, but not the book for obvious reasons, which is the music, mm-hmm. and it's peppered with musical interludes. It's um, Lionel Bart songs. The score mm-hmm. is by George Martin. I really like the music. It gives it this other dimension which which makes it worthwhile being a film in a way because mm-hmm. what you lose from people's inner monologues and that kind of thing you can you add this other this other something else which is which is really nice i mean it's it's all very very effective i think oddly the thing for me that that i always remember are the are the sellers numbers it's it's the little music hall numbers that he does which aren't all lionel bart um written part of that as well is that evocation of that other era. I mean, this is the, the documentary element within the film. I mean, while it's Sellers kind of doing that, he's actually doing, part of that's him doing the shtick that he was taught by his own parents. You know, his father was a ukulele player who was apparently just taught by George Formby. You know, there was that kind of connection there. Mm. And they, you know, so when he's doing that, he's channeling that, the Russian stuff that he goes through, the kind of Cossacky yeah. kind of yeah. number. He's actually quite he's funny, part of but... an old routine. Yeah, yeah. You know, these are numbers that, that are very much him, but they're also 
very much it's it's not just the ghost of Dan Lino, it's everybody else. Mm. I think it's the kind of show don't tell us that that history that's there that we kind of are subtly being introduced to. I started trying to look at the names on the bills for the old theatres that are around as flat because you oh, know that there's the history of music hall within that as well that there are performers there that we're, we're, we're kind of getting to see that tell us something else and it's, it's nice that, that that lives on I'm not aware which are the Lionel Bart numbers and which aren't like the one about the flapper uh, oh, yes. about <laughs> taking the name of that one I've got, I've got my uh, LP in front of me so I'm just going to have a look at the song oh very good yeah uh, Mary's public domain, according to this. So I'm not entirely sure. I'm actually not entirely sure which ones, because like Knickknack Paddywhack as well isn't a Lionel Bart number. It's an no. old, it's an old one. Um, Bart Dreamland, London by Bus. Sometimes, which he play he plays that one a lot. Sometimes, they say Mr. Bastrom Man isn't his. I don't think there's that much Bart in it. Okay. To be honest. Oh, did you give me a, a definitive Robert opinion on the nose? Did I give you a definitive... Uh, <laughs> this is an addendum, is it, for the end of the, end yeah. of the pod? Your, your bonus 30 seconds. Um, Welcome to the nose section of the programme. <laughs> is it is it Richard III? Is it has the big nose traditionally in a lot of the, the, the plays that are done? Yeah. Which, which is a character that Sellers does mock on occasion. It's been a hard day's night. Which was produced by George Martin. Yes. That Hard Day's Night performance is a is a George Martin produced track by Peter Sellers. So maybe that's quite deliberate. He does him, I think, in a show called Fred as well. Uh, he, he does play the Richard III character on occasion. But I think it was just him doing something that meant that he was a character. I, I mean, I think that, that the reason he has the false nose is to make him less like Peter Sellers mm. and more like somebody else. And that allows him to pretend to be someone else. And also meant that he could go out and walk around the streets of London and be filmed and people probably not knowing that it was him. Yeah. But also Sellers is somebody who loved prosthetics. Yeah. You know, he loved dressing up. He loved stuff like that, stuff that could just hide him ever so slightly that that made a bit more of a character. Now, there's probably other reasons that he's doing what he's doing, but it doesn't bother me in the slightest. I like that I, I kind of forget that it's him. So that is the definitive nose opinion. Yeah. I think from now on, I'll ask all my guests their opinion on the lead actor's nose. Thank you to Robert J.E. Simpson for coming on the show and for his well-informed and thoughtful contribution. You can find Robert on various Twitter accounts because he has several irons in many fires, all of which you'll find in the show notes. So I'm just going to flag up one of them here, chosen at random, which is at Cinepunked. That's at C-I-N-E. P-U-N-K-E-D. That's the Twitter account of the CinePunked podcast, which you can find at cinepunked.com. You can subscribe to that podcast there, sign up for their newsletter, and read various blog posts on film-related topics. I also just want to thank Marcus Heslop, who got in touch with me on Twitter a couple of weeks ago and sent me some very interesting information about Peter Sellers and the Optimists of Nine Elms. Go over to the show notes at sohobitespodcast.com, where you can find all that stuff I've been wobbling on about, and, of course, that all-important competition question about Dora Brown. If you want to get in touch with the show to comment, praise, slag us off or make suggestions, you can do that on Twitter. The handle is at ByteSoho or by email on SohoBytesPodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to leave us a lovely, lovely review, please do that. And you can do that at ratethispodcast.com forward slash SohoBytes. Soho Bites is produced by me, Dom Delaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jing and Young. 
We'll be back next month for the last Soho Bites of the Year. Why the last, you say? Tune in next month to find out. That's all from me. See you next month, and bye for now. Listener.